Um, here I am. So anyway, it's really weird because I'm not really speaking to you in front of me, but I have to think of you in front of me because if I don't, then I won't be able to speak to you. How you doing? <laughs> I found in the back of a closet when I was like 16. It had six songs my dad recorded when he was 20 and a long spoken letter to my mom on the back. dad's 63rd birthday he's featured on this episode i gotta say i don't know how interesting this will be for outsiders it it's very interesting to me and i think my brother will like it it's got a lot of family talk that may not be that true but maybe it's you know the father and son talking so that's interesting perhaps just innately but i must say what I like about this is that I haven't had a conversation with my dad in a long, long time. You know, I see him every few weeks or whatever, and uh, we eat dinner and, and, you know, whatever, but but we don't really talk. He's there. You know, he's usually on his, on his iPhone or whatever. He's kind of like off in his own world a bit. So... This was an excuse, essentially, to sit down and uh, talk for an hour and a half. That's what it functioned as for me. Now, I I am glad we did it. I'm very glad we did it. And I hope to be able to do that again uh, with him, and not necessarily on tape. I mean, he he, he commented when I left. He said, well, we got to do this again. The only way we're going to get to do it is if we record it. But I don't think that's true. I think that we could uh, actually just have lunch or something like that, right? Well, I'm heading out to California soon. And I have a lot of cool guests that I'm going to be interviewing out there. Uh, some, some surprises for y'all. For some reason, I, I, well, I know why. I'm getting like deep into the comedy world. That's when I'm talking to all these comedians. Because Andre Highland hooked me up with all these guys. Um, what else to say about my dad? My dad, so my dad is a Messianic rabbi. Messianic Jews are uh, Jews that believe in Jesus. He's done that since I was born. And he also is very artistic. He, he m- made a movie last year. Um, and he wrote a book and he's written like a ton of songs throughout his life you'll you'll I, I don't know he, he was a little bit he's a little quiet in the beginning of the interview he's kind of like maybe tired or something but he, he he gets he gets he wakes up throughout so just bear with it um, 
it's a little echoey for some reason. We did it at, at my parents' house. It, you know, they got the hard wood and all that, so it's kind of bouncy or something. Not much furniture in there, I guess. That's my mom in the beginning. Just, just listen to it. My love, this freedom is upon us. Our lust is a talent of the moon. So let me take you off your doorstep with my drive as strong as a Trying to make a reservation for that place tonight. It's an off night. Okay. It's Thursday night. We've been trying to go to dinner for like three weeks. Yeah. Well, it's the only place she'll go practically. So the, bo- great. the bottom line is uh, this is going to end up on our. Thing. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I added I them all up. <laughs> I'd offer you another kombucha. Mine are made with sugar, but if you drink it, I already have one. Did Mark Fye send that thing to that YouTube with uh, Joe Biden and? Um, That's a nice. Rob O'Reilly and everything. It's like. The, the technology is so unbelievable now. I mean, it looks like he's actually saying that it's incredible. Oh, they changed do the mouth or whatever. Yeah, the whole thing. But you know what? a guy on his left playing the guitar. That Speaking of that, and the, probably the first time they tried to do that, I just watched Forrest Gump. Oh, right. Oh, That's right. I was just thinking about that You know morning. what? This is so much more sophisticated yeah. than Forrest I was trying to remember Forrest Gump. Like, why was he at all these events? I was trying to even think... That's the whole idea is that he basically right. is this character that sort of... I was trying to remember, but went throughout history. Encompasses that generation. Right, right. So it, it, wasn't all, all th- it was all hit at one time period. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I can yeah, remember that. your generation, really. Right, I mean, right. And the March on Washington, remember. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Kennedy. It's just amazing. Uh, how Nixon, Kennedy. Right, right, right. right. Ping pong. Yeah. When I was in China on All-America Ping Pong Team, I just loved playing ping pong with my Flexo lights, Ping Pong Pat. Everybody knows it's true, but Mama says just a little white light, so it wasn't hurting nobody. You turned your book into a script, right? I did, and that's all that's happening right now is that somebody is shopping it around. I'm not writing right now or anything. I'm not. I don't have anything. Why? Why? Why is that? Like you had, you seem like a couple years ago you had a real. I don't have any real uh, burst. I don't have anything in my, you know, heart to do right now. Yeah. What? What in your life at the time when you started doing that? You wrote the book. You wrote the. I mean, you made the movie, or you or you worked towards making it around the same time. Um, I don't know. I just uh, I've always done stuff, as you know, and you like you always do stuff. The reason I wrote the book, uh, not the reason, but the how how I ended up writing it is because I had already written the script, and then as it turned out, I didn't um, it didn't have anywhere to go just yet. And so I just wrote the book, you know, while the script was being considered. I just, you know, I tried to write something a couple of years ago, but I didn't like it. I didn't go anywhere with it. I mean, you told I me you were... chapters. At some point you were writing something that was sort of not maybe autobiographical, but about your demographic anyway, a messianic rabbi, right? Yeah, 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 it was that kind of thing. But I didn't, I didn't really get into it. I didn't like where it was going. Yeah. You know? It wasn't all a true thing, but so it was super broad, you know, almost epic, and several parts of it. But I just, I just dropped it. How do you know when something when something feels like it's going, or something feels like it's? Yeah, I just didn't feel like 
like it was, um, I didn't feel like I had a real handle on it, what I was really doing. I had an overall theme that I thought about, but uh, ironic theme, but I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really feel like it. Women are ironic theme. Um, you know, life lessons. Like for me, everything starts very, like, extremely vague, unaware of itself. Little pieces come together. Slowly, slowly a picture starts to form. Yeah. Is it like that for you or or do you set out with like a main theme and then work towards that? Yeah, it's not like what you do. It's more an overall broad thematic idea. It doesn't mean I filled in all the blanks or I even don't know how it's going to end or I don't know what every character is going to do or that it doesn't take me on an adventure, but I have a broad... You have a, a broad scope of what it's going to be and then you sort yeah. of fill in the details as, as you Yeah, know. details and even somewhat, sometimes the direction. It may take a different direction, but I don't start out with just fragments of words or word pictures or you know something like that. I guess you started doing the movies... Like 20 years ago, maybe, we'd say? It was more than that. I think 86, maybe. That was the first Joshua's move? No, yeah, right around there. But before that, even, I did the home movies where I edited them with... And all this language does not fit today, but without a time-based corrector, which you don't need anymore because everything's digital, and with with video cassette recorders that did not have what they called flying erase heads... What's that? A flying erase had allowed you to have a clean cut between between when you turn it on and turn it off. If you didn't have rather that, than having all those little like the rainbowing, the rainbow that comes down, right, which right. I kind of like actually as a, <laughs> as a piece of nostalgia. Over right, it. right. But I'm sure at the time it was frustrating. And that was you mean when you say that you mean the videos that we did, the, yeah, the home yeah, home videos, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what at the time was like when when you got a camera and I remember you would rent cameras at first um, to shoot videos. I rented one camera. We didn't have any money. I rented a, a, the first Sony Handycam that didn't have a uh, playback ability in it. Yeah. My brother owned one. And, okay. Uh, and it, and it was, it was a, like a camcorder, really. But it didn't have any playback mechanism. It didn't have a TV screen in it. It didn't have any of that. It just had... It was like, you know, a 16mm or 8mm camera. Right, uh, just go, only goes forward. Yeah. Right. And then you would take the tapes and put them in, I think, a little VCR that they created for it or something like that so that you could uh, plug that into a television. What did, you, what did you shoot with that first one that you ran? You baseball. Okay. Um, you know. But not the Batman uh, stuff and all that. No, the Batman stuff we did, I think... No, and the first Batman movie I did that. Okay. Movie. That was a one-day rental. What made you want to do that? Because your brother had it and he told... And he no, was... I've always wanted to do film. I've always been fascinated with film. So. What, since what? When, when can I you remember? I was a teenager. I, I tried to fix up a 16mm uh, camera and stuff like that. didn't really work out that well. What, what made you want to do it? Like, go, like watching movies as a teenager or... or uh... Yeah, just the whole thing. Yeah, you know, I always enjoyed doing that type of stuff. Is there a certain movie you can think of that you that really set the wheels in motion in your head about that? Not really. Okay, I don't think. By the way, just so you know, the the, the thing is not it's not like a not a formal interview necessarily. So you can ask me questions. We, you know, it's it's casual. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah, I do. But I'll take it anywhere you want to go with it because I mean, yeah, I'm, you're the interviewer. I didn't. 
write anything down. No, or, I, that's fine. Or, or ha- I don't have an agenda. I, I just... I understand. Wanted to talk about whatever comes I understand. Comes up. I understand. But somehow we got started there because... Well, I, something. I, I, I'm used to talking about the arts. And, well, you know, I, I'd say that that's a major part of your artistic nature, artistic side. Yeah, that's certainly something that I... And my father, you know, didn't he didn't really uh, get ever get into the writing side of it, but uh, you know his love for music and and uh, you know the classics, Shakespeare and stuff like that. You know, he those things were things that he really enjoyed, and he played classical piano, and he really was, you know, had a strong interest in the classical. He had his very serious issues, so you know we didn't really keep a very close relationship in terms of sharing things with each other all through our... But the the only time that I shared interest with him was when he shared those those things with me when I was maybe 9, 10, 11 years old. And, what um, things? Like, well, uh, certain concertos, uh, the Mendelssohn first concerto in G minor. You did that with me. I was about 10 years old. Yeah, and I tried. You, you had the old Fisher Price phonograph, and I wanted you to in, appreciate the Tchaikovsky. I remember one uh, night. Concerto in D, yeah. Is that what it was? I don't remember the piece, yeah, but you yeah. came in, and you're like, you know, you got to check this out. And yeah. It was a tape or something. I thought it was a record. Maybe, maybe a record. record maybe, yeah. maybe a record. Um, and uh, you put it on. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, to feel something from it. I didn't necessarily. Well, it may not have been all your fault. I can picture it now on that. A ten year old trying to. <laughs> yeah, and a ten year old trying to appreciate Tchaikovsky. You know what I'm saying? It's a little right. Oh, the, with that turntable. <laughs> yeah, and my my musical references were, you know, Striper. As a connection, I think to you, you know, just to. Well, my father did not like anything after Gustav Mahler, and in fact, that was a late, which was like 1910. That was a late thing for him because he thought anything had no interest in it. Sort of modern was was what he didn't like the impressions. He didn't like that. You say he didn't like. He said he used to say that's not my cup of tea. He said meaning what? It's lowbrow or something like that. Just made that comment. It's not my cup of tea. A guy at the record store near us turned him on to Mahler uh, when he was like, uh, you know, 55 years old. So that, you know, but otherwise it was everything before that. So it was just romantic and, and pre, like, mainly. Baroque, main... Baroque, Baroque, classical and romantic period. Okay. was my dad's only thing. And he actually, I mean, he said Gershwin, he like, you know, he said he's a mouse, but he's a big mouse or something like that. It's a crazy statement. You know, he thought, what does that? What does that mean? Like, like he, he said. Well, he used to say. Well, he he got into ninths. You know, Gershwin. You know, he so it's not high art. He's saying it's not high art, but but it's higher art than it could be. He's good at what he does. Yeah, he liked it. You know, I think partially there's a whole other dynamic with that. You know, he identified with the fact that Gershwin was a Jewish immigrant, or his family were Jewish immigrants. Okay, but you so know, he gave him a pass, even though it yeah, wasn't. Some of the music resonated for him, but I, I think that most the, the main thing is that he did not like at all the writers of the musicals. My mother used to try to help him to appreciate them, 
and he just couldn't do that. But my mother, I had this little phonograph when I was six or seven or eight years old, and my mother bought me uh, like the original Broadway cast of Oklahoma, the 1943 with Alfred Drake and Joan Roberts and Celeste Holm playing Addo Annie. <laughs> Sweeping down the plane. And um, I would just listen to that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I really, as a five and six year old, really developed an appreciation for that. My father didn't like that stuff at all. He just, Roger and Hammerstein, he just wouldn't be caught in that movie theater ever. They're, they're, they're goys too, yeah? No, they were Jewish, but and he they just were, did oh, not Hammerstein, like yeah, uh, Rogers too. But he okay. just didn't like the music. He just didn't, he figured, you know, Beethoven. Uh, and Mozart and Beethoven said it all, and nobody had to re-say it, you know. Yeah. That was his feeling. But he had a tremendous ear. Even though they're Germans? I don't know where... German or Austrian? I, I don't know where Rogers or Hammerstein's families came no, from. No, 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 Mozart and Beethoven. Uh, Mozart and Beethoven. Yes, that's true. No, that's very true. No, Mozart and Beethoven, I mean, he just considered them to be the top yeah. because of their sensibility and their, their ability. Was that passed down from his dad? You well, think, his or? father was... Died when my father was four. That's right. I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anybody else in his family who had any great interest in that area. But he came here when he was twelve from Riga. Or his brother, maybe. The brothers had no interest at all. No. And uh, none. And and my father uh, was nineteen when he started playing the piano. Got one of the better piano teachers and started playing it. Just on his own accord. Yeah. But I can remember when I was, you know, 19 years, 18 years old, and had, uh, you know, a stereo unit, big stereo unit that my father, he, he bought a lot of those kinds of things in my room that I kind of borrowed from him. And uh, I would, I was playing um, um, Joni Mitchell's first album. And uh, when, back when she had a voice, you know. And uh, he remarked that, uh, that, that he could tell that she had a sine wave voice. What do you mean a sine wave voice? Like it means that there's no overtones; that it's a very pure voice. Okay. And he said that, you know, and I was pretty impressed. First of all, that he could discern that, not that he liked that music. Did you ever have the feeling like you wanted to relate to your dad on music? Did you oh, feel yeah. guilty about liking Oklahoma, for example? Or? I did not feel guilty about that. I was too young. Yeah. And it was just that later on when the movie came out. Or the movie came out in 55, but, you know, one of those movies would come out and my father would make those comments, but I didn't really put it together. At that time. I liked what I yeah. liked. No, yeah, I, I liked what I liked, and I didn't... I, that, and your that, mom liked it. it. So, yeah, 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 she wanted me to... Yeah, she always enjoyed those movies. Yeah, she liked that stuff. Do you feel like you had a closer relationship with her, or it was uh, at least a more warm I had a much, had a much warmer yeah. connection with her than with him. She had her own... Yeah, oh, Absolutely. He he was kind of hard. Uh, well, he was angry about everything, and, uh, I guess. Yeah, he was angry. even when he hugged you, he would hug you too hard, you know. Yeah, like my memory of him is he felt very uh, he felt very wooden. I mean, he was old by the time yeah. I knew him. We're pretty old, not that old. When I think about it now, and I don't think about you guys as that old, but you're sixty, about to be sixty three. Yeah, at least mom's parents. When we were kids, were that age? They were like well, he was maybe when you first met him. He died at eighty in nineteen ninety, so maybe seventy four. I guess that's fairly old, yeah. Well, but he, he always seemed real, real hard. 
I mean, at that point, he could flare up, but he was mostly depressed, I think. I don't know. It felt like somebody that had lived, lived a hard life and had a... Made a life, life of anxiety. Yeah. Pent-up frustration and anger. Yeah. A lot of blaming. And, and he was on medication. For, for that or for depression? Different or for, things. At one point, he took some Librium and stuff. But then, toward at one point, they created a kind of a... Um, they created like a placebo for him with my sister brother working at it or something. I don't even remember. Like they were know. working with the doctor? Yeah, yeah, because he was taking so much or something that they just put these like red sugar pills. In. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And it, and did that and it worked still? I guess. I don't know what it did. Why do you why do you took Valium and Librium a lot, I think, toward the end. Uh, not toward the end. But maybe when he was about sixty he was taking that. Just to cool him out. Yeah, I think so. Because yeah. he would have like he would, when you say flare up, he would just go nuts and just yeah, scream at everybody. Screaming, yeah. What do you think that stems from? Like, why did he ha- ha- have well, that? Well, I know that he had that problem early on. Like, he had a breakdown at fifty three, but I was told in fifty three when you were thirty three years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. After a business setback, but I was told that, um, and he never. I don't think he ever really got any psychiatric care for it. But I was told by these people that worked down on Sansom Street, Jewelers Row, that he was like that in the 40s and stuff. But I don't think my mom knew about that until after she got married, because I, I was talking to some of the relatives on his side that came out a year or two ago. Sorry to but he owned the jewelry store but before he, he was with your mom and everything no. like that? No. Okay. Maybe. But he was a watch... He started out as a watch repairman. Okay. Because his oldest brother taught him how to do that. Where, and he worked in somebody else's shop. Yeah. Made parts for the military in World War Two, and then after that, like small, small. I think parts after that he bought this. Yeah, parts for military stuff. Yeah, and he didn't own a jewelry store in the fifties. Not until he lost the jewelry store in the business setback in the early fifties, and then he didn't purchase another. He repurchased that in the late sixties, or rented it, rented it, and then he lost that, and he rented another one in another place, or bought that building in New Jersey, Collingswood. And then he also had this watch repairman in our basement all the time. and A guy that works for him now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mail-in. And they were mail-in, like they go to different places in the country. Uh-huh. He struggled financially, uh, really, uh, for many years. He actually had a hard time during the 50s. And he would go, in the early 60s, and he would go up, up and down the East Coast, uh, subcontract, trying to go to machine shops and try to get the lowest bid from the government on a on a on a part and try to the government would have a contract with certain we are there my basement was filled filled with uh, blueprints okay they had blueprints and he had to take the blueprints to these these shops and try to get them to uh, give him a price that he could be the low bidder right on the part what made him so stressed and angry I mean I, obviously that's that's stressful and mo- you had to have money to have for a family and all that no, no, but I, it, it, apparently it was like that before you think yeah, it just from well, basically brother, not having a, not having parents essentially I can't say all the reasons for it I think there was a lot of depression that ran in the family one of his sisters ended up it, it turns out she probably committed suicide at one point we don't know the, all the facts but they hid that from the family for years and then I don't know all the facts about it, but um, his his uh, two brother his two bachelor brothers raised him, and they were like characters. One right. was more of a character than the other. 
you know. Simon was the oldest one, right? Simon was married, though. Okay, okay. This is Max and Dave. Max and Dave, who were who were between Simon and him? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There were four boys, four girls. And they were just really characters. They were just, like, very immature and very strange. And They were super religious, right? Or they, they, they were, were orthodox. orthodox uh, but especially Dave wasn't respected much by any of the other members of the family, whether they were orthodox or not. Why? He was kind of a womanizer. He would... People didn't really know. He had, like, a secret life that people couldn't really figure out. And He, he kind was of, kind of a playboy. Yeah. yeah, it was strange. My sister used to get the creeps when he would hug her, you know. He was just a strange... Right, strange right. Thing. He was just a strange guy. He was like... He was, and he looked a little like my father, so it was like Bizarro. <laughs> he was a little weird, unfortunately, because you know he died in suspicious conditions where I, I think they just found his body or something. House roaming around, and oh golly! You but think anyway, he, he raised me, my uncle Max. No, I don't think so. I don't really know what happened. Nobody ever was clear about it. But, you know, when he would come over the house of my relatives on his side, you know, a lot of them were Orthodox. Some were Orthodox, one more. He was bugging me about um, Messianic Judaism once, and just, and they were trying to get him off my case, you know. But he was just the rest kind of, of the family was, guy. yeah. Or well, Leon, which is Simon's son, and some others. You know, they loved him, but he just they couldn't quite figure him out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. They couldn't figure him out. Black sheep, as we say. Yeah, and then you know, Max was also unusual. He wasn't. They were closer to Max. He was more there than than Dave. He was also a bachelor. What was his and he deal? sold like little rain bonnets. They both did. They both sold like little rain bonnets and things. You know what I'm saying? Little plastic things. Just like whatever they could pedal, basically. Yeah, like combs. And, right. Uh, and Made in China little stuff. Little wallets. Yeah, today yeah. it would be. I don't know, back then. Um, you said he had a, you know, and at least, you know, depression nowadays, you think about it as being a genetic thing a lot, you know, and passed down. But you don't seem to have that at all, I wouldn't say. Do you, what do you think? No, I don't suffer from depression. And I wouldn't say, I mean, in my estimation, your brother and sister don't seem, didn't seem, you know, to have um, that either, really, right? Yeah, you don't ever know from the outside, it's hard to say. Right. But. Yeah. Harry, I mean, he had that accident in the 90s so that he had yeah. brain, minimal brain injury. Which changed his personality somewhat. It did. I don't think, I don't think he suffered from that. I don't know. Uh, yeah. My mother suffered from a lot of anxiety, and I've struggled with that in my life. I'm doing okay now. I'm doing better, but earlier in my life, I struggled with that. I just gave a message at our conference on that called uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Yeah, anybody wants to listen to it, go to njaa.org and just go to the archives. What was the, What's the gist of that, and how And what's what's about about how do you not worry? worry anxiety? Well, the message talks about it, but it yeah. talks about the fact that, you know, there's all this scriptural... And for people who don't know, right? I'm a messianic rabbi. You know, we have uh, we have to get to that because that's a yeah, huge right. part of your life. So anyway, so um, on when I was on vacation with mom, definitely began to get some understanding. God began to really kind of speak into my heart about how it's I could live a life a worry free life beyond what I can do and also can do, which is legitimate, which is you know to you know, pray and put things on God's shoulders that, that, that concern me, which is fine. And, 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 and But to realize that those are tools to an end, which is, they're not fixes. Right. And that's really what the message is about. It's, it's not like those are fixes to a life of anxiety. They are tools used in a life without anxiety. So so basically, that's what it was about. Um, 
anxiety has been an issue. Now, my mother, really, I think she really struggled a lot with worry about all of so many things. Like? Finances a lot. Okay. And health. And um, for us, you know, I was not a good student in, in elementary school and junior high. And my brother, we were kind of like, you know. And just so many things in her life that, you know, my father's really seriously psychological and emotional problems, if not more. I mean, you know, so it was really... That she didn't know she was getting into... No, she didn't. And she didn't know how to handle it or how to respond to it or how to deal with it other than scream back at him. But we actually actually had this one situation <laughs> uh, where... Uh, I'm sorry why I'm laughing. <laughs> no, it's all right. What's up? Nothing. <laughs> Mom was trying to... She's trying to light the stage, you know, to, so that you and I connect or something. I'm, I'm trying to mellow out, man. The light was in my eye. Anyway. Mom, mom has her, mom has her uh, way of doing it. My mom just came in and turned the light on, and then I turned it back off. That's what I, I, I did, I did. It's fine, it's fine. Okay. So anyway, I'm laughing because of some things Mom and I were talking about before. What was I talking about? I can't remember. Man, I don't remember. See, that's genetic too. <laughs> right, um, exactly. Well, anyway. No, your mother's uh, anxieties. I, I asked yeah. if she, if, did she know what she was getting into yeah, that's right. marrying your dad? No, like, no, apparently not. And that was something that came, like I said, from, I think, her niece um, on my father's side uh, when we had a discussion at uh, wait, her Debbie's niece? house. Wait. Uh, you know, her, her, her brother-in-law, Simon's daughter, uh, who was like 80. Oh, Simon's daughter had 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 I see. Well, we were talking. Yeah, we were talking about the first time that her mother Anne, Simon's, Simon's wife, mom's wife yeah. was driving on uh, the uh, Roosevelt Boulevard in Philadelphia. Which, if anybody's been to Philadelphia, it's like another world than the West Side of Philadelphia. It just goes on and on forever. And there's this median strip in Northeast Philadelphia. Oh, it's the, yeah, where you grew up. Well, I didn't grow up in Northeast. I grew up I'm in sorry, North Northwest Philadelphia. I grew yeah. up in West Philadelphia. Yeah. Not even Northwest, but West Philadelphia. No, this was this is the Northeast, the great Northeast. It just goes on and on forever. Sort of like the west side of Cincinnati? Yes. I compare it to the west side of Cincinnati, yeah. exactly. And it's another world. Right. And, and there's a whole Jewish community up there, you know, and Catholic community, and there's a lot of blue collar up there. A little more old school, maybe, and not, not so liberal. I'm not... Uh, Possibly some of them, but it just goes on and on forever. I can't say that about the Jewish community there, but I, but it goes on forever. And my father went into one of his tirades. Like his sister-in-law. It's 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 Anne, Simon, your dad, and the, the daughter. Well, Anne wasn't there. Okay, okay. I mean, excuse me. Simon wasn't there. The daughter Ruthie wasn't there. It was just Anne. Oh, and and your dad. And my mother and father. Okay, okay. And my father was going off on my mother about something. I don't even know what. And did his typical thing, which I remembered from my childhood, you know, where he would just scream and go crazy. and About and, whatever, and it would turn into something yeah, that had yeah, nothing lame, to do with Yeah, lame, you know, you ruin the kid. But, I mean, you know, I can almost remember a lot of the things he would say, which, you know, I sort of documented a little bit in, in that uh, movie that's never been made. And one time I recorded him. I had this little reel-to-reel recorder, Columbia Masterworks recorder that I got from my bar mitzvah. You record him going off? Yeah, yeah. Really? On a real to real tape, which I don't have. It'd be really interesting to find it, but I don't think we could ever... I think it's probably... Do you remember what he was talking about? It's starting to rain here. No. So apparently my Aunt Anne just demanded to get out of the car. 
make her way home another way. She couldn't handle it. Because she couldn't handle it. She'd never seen that before. She didn't realize that side of him existed. I see. So that was my dad, to a certain extent. I mean, it had to affect you somehow. Well, I mean, it did. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it definitely affected me. How, how, do you, how so, you think? Well, my brother used to fight back. He used to scream at him, and they actually got into punching matches sometimes. But I would just I'd go upstairs and put a pillow around my head and try to, you know, not hear it. So I was the youngest. My sister was the oldest, and my brother was in the middle. Do you feel like you still have that sort of response when things get out of hand like that? Not that you're going to run and put a pillow over your head at this point, but... <laughs> well, I don't like very angry people. I don't think anybody likes angry people. Yeah. You know, I have to deal with angry people sometimes. How do you, how do you deal with that? Because I know you do, you know, this is a soft answer, turns away wrath. You know, I try to be gentle with them. I don't yeah. It's one of the more difficult things to do because people who are in that state aren't being very rational about things and they don't you know, I was just talking about this last night. Just people who hold anger and grudges in their heart and so forth, how how skewed it makes their perspective in life, how almost irrational they act, you know, as a result of Do you think I do that? No. I don't see that you doing that. No. What's I mean, my what's anger. my problem? <laughs> <laughs> well you're first of all, I wouldn't say my father was an introvert, you know what I mean? I think introverts don't tend to express anger that same way, except maybe in very confined circumstances. Maybe. Yeah, I've done that in confined circumstances. Yeah, well, I think with you, uh, what you have done is allow it to build up and have this deep frustration that then you might explode, not by necess necessarily screaming at the top of your lungs to somebody, but just by like shutting down or or just having a momentary upset. Breaking my hand. Yeah, breaking your hand, something like that. And, you know, my, Rachel's father was kind of that way. You know, he would just, like, be super introverted and then, like, might just let out an expletive, you know. I remember that, yeah. Like, if he, you know, dropped something, he would just, ah, you know. But he would never rant. Right. He would never they had a very different dynamic than your parents. Yeah, 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 her parents yeah, yeah, yeah. Very different dynamic. Very different. You th dynamic. Maybe I'm. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I have a, a mix between you and her and mom. But I think you know. I think probably my melancholia probably comes more from her side, right? Her yeah, mom know. and her dad. You know, I mean, I think their family struggled with a lot of stuff, too, you know. It's like I say, every family struggles with sure. different things in different ways. Let's get into the religion stuff, or, or you, you know, I don't like it. And I'm fine with your calling religion stuff. I know you don't, you don't. Feel, well, whatever, because I never thought about it that way. I didn't have that perspective on it. You know, it seems very old-fashioned, like you got religion, like something sure. somebody in the military would say to somebody else in the military in 1943 or something, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. You got religion or something. Yeah, but at some point you got religion. <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> that way. metaphysics, whatever you want to call it. Got, uh, divinity, uh, what is spirituality. Spirituality, right? Yeah, well, I think that's there's a place for that. Listen, you, I have no problem with your calling it that. Yeah, <laughs> I just have a certain response whenever I hear it referred to that way, you know. It's really coming down outside. It's yeah, good, it though. It is. We do need it. it um, well, they, they've been saying constantly that it was going to rain in the last few days. And so it hasn't. And yeah. It hasn't, right? Yeah. This is it. 
Good. Well, I can help you a little bit. I mean, I grew up with my father's perspective. Which, which was? Which was sort of agnosticism. My father was... Agnosticism raised, or atheism? Well, he didn't call himself an atheist. He called no. himself an agnostic. So I'll go by what he called himself. This whole idea is you don't know. But an angry agnostic is sort of like a... Well, he was angry, an angry agnostic, because, you know, World War II had happened and the Holocaust. He took it very personally. You know, we used to have this picture on the, um, the mantle of all his cousins and him and his brothers taken before he left for America. Maybe he He's was like 11. three years old. No, oh. it was maybe 10 years old. Okay, okay. Just, or just maybe 8 years old. My mother used to, and his brothers were like 12 or 13 or something. My mother used to cover, or he used to cover the bottom part of his face. and Because I, I looked so much like in my eyes and stuff like that. In that he, photo? Yeah. You know, most of them had died in the Holocaust. So they left them behind. And just his brother and he were here and, and the other ones... And, you know, it was always pointed out to me that these people, this was what happened to these people. And, right. You know, my father was very close to those people and many others. And, and most of Riga was just, you know, killed one way or another, either from taking them out in trains. So or he came train. from Riga. And, we and he came that. from Riga. Yeah. So a lot of the north of the city and the woods and so forth, with the things that were done. Because I was in Riga in 97 and found out a lot about it. So he was very angry about that. What, is it, what did his... Family do in Riga. I was just that's something. Well, it's an interesting story because I don't want to take too many asides. Lost, but I'm lost his father already. They moved to Riga from Lithuania. They moved to Latvia so from Lithuania. I see. So he 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 grew up at a very young age in in Lithuania. Yeah, they moved when he was four apparently to Latvia to okay. Riga, and I don't think they had much money because he didn't have a father. And his mother, they had eight How did children. They, that's, they moved to Latvia when his dad died in, I believe in so. Lithuania? That's what it seems like from well that I can glean now. Okay. So he lived there between 4 and 12, you know, most of his formative years. He yeah. Was in, he, was in, he was in Riga. And he sang in the synagogue choir. <clears throat> he never sang as an adult, never had any interest in... Didn't have much interest in vocal music, but it actually was always strange to me that that was his introduction to music, was that he sang. Yeah. Uh, his brother... Max apparently was like a fur trapper, fur trader. Fur trader. <laughs> really? Yeah. And he would when he was like sixteen or something. Yeah, when he was there in in the yeah yeah yeah, and so he he would go around uh, and um, and he would uh, yeah he would uh, trade furs and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know how they all made a living over there. Apparently, they didn't make much of a living because they. They, they brought each other over here one at a time. My father was the last one who came over with his mother. They would come here and work, get money, and then send for the next one? Yeah, that's right. And they were very poor here, but they did what they could. And you grew up lower middle class, would you no, say? I, no, no, no. We lived in a very nice house. That was nice. Yeah, a really nice house. But, you know, we couldn't afford it. So he was always <laughs> under stress financially. Yeah. But he lived in a nice house. And what, what was the neighborhood? Was it, it was oh, in Penwyn. Penwyn. All the rest of his family lived in North Philadelphia in these row houses in the lower middle, really lower class area. And uh, How did he lower do this in the first place to get the loan for the house? Well, because he developed these businesses. Yeah. He bought the house in 47, maybe within the year that my sister was born. Uh-huh. With but the idea already, of the new American. Yeah, community. but he hadn't, he hadn't suffered his business setback yet. So he had a... A jewelry store. He had a machine shop, Frank Wolf Manufacturing Company, which had about a hundred workers in there or something like that. I see. 
Because that was well, how he made parts during World War II. And then after the war, things kind of fizzled? Yeah, uh, to a certain extent. But uh, mostly it was this one guy that um, sued him, who was a ju- became a judge later on. And my mother was always very angry about that guy. I see. I don't even know the details. She never wanted to talk about it. But let's get back to so you, the, the photograph on the mantle. So he was very upset about that. He blamed the he blamed everybody, blamed the Christian world, the world that didn't care about the Jews, blamed God. You know, was very much in rebellion against the Orthodox. He never liked, "Blessed are you, Lord our God." Brachatad and I, you know, he liked, "Well, why should we bless God?" You know, I mean, which is, and it kind of comes from the script. I mean, it's the most typical prayer in Judaism, but. It, Sort of comes from, you know, whatever, Psalm 34, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me, bless his holy name. But, you know, what does it mean? I mean, it doesn't mean what my father, but it was just a way for my father to say, this doesn't make any sense to me, you know. What did his family feel about him not participating or not? I mean, he participated, you celebrated holidays, right? Very little. I mean, yeah, he came out to some of the holidays, and whenever he would put the yarmulke on, he wore those, like, rayon ones, you know, when I got to be about 13 years old and ended up going to Camp Ramah and everything, if you were really cool and you were really into your Judaism, you were either going to be like the real intense guys who were Orthodox who were, you know, they wore this like cloth kippah or maybe a hat, a black hat if they were Chabad or something. Or you were like they, modern Those Jewish. same kids went to Ramah with you? Uh, just not really. I mean, not, no, not too many Chassids. There was one kid that... This kind of from the ultra-Orthodox community in Brooklyn. He had like a red kippah that he wore. But I, I think the point is that uh, you either wore that or you wore like a knitted thing because Israel was beginning to really develop and it was that whole modern, you know, cooler Israeli-Jew connection there with the modern knitted kippah, you know. So they were exporting those to the States for... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. people would make them, you know, or whatever. I mean, it was... A, but the rayon ones, that was like your stopgap, you know. It's like they give them to you when you're in the city. Like, yeah, right, right, right. And and I always felt like it never sat on my father's head very well, like it's like cone head or whatever. And we would go, like, we'd go over to my Uncle Arthur's house, or they would come over for Passover. They he always had the knit, you know, he always had the thing that looked, made him look cool, you know, with the, you know, he put on the, or something made out of like velvet or something. Right. And my father was always like the, the, the big cone <laughs> one, because he didn't care. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he just put it on, you know, for that thing. And then I mean, he, he would come out very infrequently. To but he put it on. He <coughs> wouldn't refuse to put it he on. He would put it on out of respect, yeah. yeah. I mean, there were things about it just from the point of view of his childhood, his memories. It was important for him to say the Kaddish, the prayer that said, you know, to remember those who passed on. Because he had so many people that passed on, I'm sure. Yeah, but I mean, it still, you know, it's something. there was something, a spiritual longing in him. So that's how I grew up um, with that. And he would argue with his brothers, right? You know, and his brothers were strange about the whole thing. But that's a whole other story, you know. Like strange about right? him not not. Being... Well, they were they were strange about their Judaism. Like, oh yeah, they would like come over my our house, like they they wanted us to eat kosher. But Max, I think, came over our house with these like dirty glasses that he he wanted to give us these glasses, but they were like you could clearly see they had like dirt in them, and it's like. Drinking glasses? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I don't know what that was all about, but my mother was like, okay, Max, okay. And then it's like she would throw him out or something because, or I don't know what she would do. My mother was a clean freak. But, you know, they just seemed like they never washed their own hands, which they did, I'm sure. And there's even a 
need to do that. But just, it just seemed weird. And uh, my father just really never resonated with the kind of lifestyle that they lived. But why? But what, is, what does that have to do with Judaism, the fact that these guys were dirty bachelors? Because they were so insistent on things like kashrut and stuff like that. I see what you're saying. Right, right. right. They were so insistent about all that stuff. About the clean laws, but they didn't yeah. abide. Well, really it just seemed odd. Yeah. You know, there's much more that could be said about it, but but my father just didn't respect them. My father did not respect his two brothers. I mean, he just didn't. And, yeah. So and you grew up with that? You grew it. up with this, basically... Anger towards God or the, or or towards the way. Well, I didn't have an anger towards. God. No, no, with your your dad though. Yeah, the yeah, way things went. Yeah. You saw that as an as an example in front of you. You know, I wasn't trained or raised to believe that there was efficacy in personal prayer or anything. I mean, I just grew up the way I grew up. I grew up in a more material uh, expectation. You know. Yeah. And 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 when I would ask about life after death, you know, I got the answer that it was a good nineteen fifties. Jewish and maybe other culture answer. I don't know for some. Which people, was what that that you know that you just live as best life you can, and your goal is to be a good memory for other people. That, right. That that you live on in people's memories. When when did you ask that? Do you remember a certain time when you? I was quite young, and I, I developed, I think, that perspective. So from both my mother, who had a kind of a more modern nineteen fifties. This is all there is, kind of, but not just this or all there is, because she did have a faith in, in a God being there. And she also did really live out her credo, I guess, because she really thought it was important to remember people who died. She felt that there was sanctity in life, and certainly sanctity in the people's lives that she knew and that she... She would, she would really try to, try to honor those... She did people's lives she did but her answer to me was insufficient i mean it was you know not it was insufficient for you 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 felt that it didn't satisfy the question i had i had a kind of a a phobia that would come on me uh at night usually and i could bring it on if i thought about it what because of of my conviction that that before i was born i had no consciousness and after i died I would have no consciousness. I don't know if anybody else struggles with this. You know, people struggle with different I'm things. I'm sure. Yeah. And so there would be this vacuousness, this um, spiritual um, void or this collapsing in on itself type of feeling. If I would think about somebody that I knew that had died, it could be somebody I knew personally or it could be a figure in history uh, that I knew about that for all eternity before they were born and then I would get that feeling about eternity being endless that there was no that there was no uh, existence there was no self-consciousness about themselves there was no existence and then for all eternity after they died there was no existence and so and that was anxiety inducing yeah because it was unfathomable it's like thinking about right And and making you feel like you were, you were just uh, an ant. Yeah, and, and, and less than an ant, really, because um, you would be a, you would be nothing. There'd be nothing. So those feelings uh, would send me maybe to the bathroom, you know, thinking about that in my bed, you know, and I would panic with that. And so the bathroom would give you diarrhea, you mean? Or no, no, just oh. wanting to be, get out of the room or whatever. I see. Now, at that time, 
I mean, there were certain kinds of, like maybe in Ripley's Believe It or Not, or in some kind of an account like that, you might have some inkling, you know, like somebody would see somebody die and could sense the you know, shadow rising from them or something like that. Right. But other than that... You, some you kind know, of Victorian book. Yeah, like, right. Or, like I said... Wood carving. I, I think that the... I think that that Ripley's Believe It or Not is a kind of a Victorian thing. Yeah, know? it is. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you didn't have, like, today, a lot of the things, evidences that are, that, that are constantly coming forth as much there was a little bit of that written about back then but it was, of people you mean people like dying and coming back to right, life kind right, of stuff right 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 I just talked to someone yesterday who that happened to yeah he died for a minute 53 seconds yeah and then but he he didn't have I asked him I said do you have any of those experiences he didn't and what he, happened to him he felt like it was more or less like sleep. he got he had cirrhosis of his liver like okay and uh he said it was more or less like falling asleep and then waking up yeah except it was like just way deeper you know what I mean yeah, like yeah so at any rate but people who have been in that position for more time than that yeah and not everybody who's been in that position for more time than that but certainly have so there, there's you know all kinds of things that people you know you don't have to go to Ripley believe it or not anymore to, to find something right. where somebody sees Accounts a doctor it. trying to from above or they see the light or they heaven or hell or whatever it is so there's lots of other kinds of you know uh, things being written about so uh, anyway I might have been persuaded if a lot of that literature was available or or video or television or whatever or YouTubes or whatever if that was available back then I might have felt differently than I did but all the existing evidence around me in my family, from my mother, from my father, from everything that I had any kind of access to. was about coming from the vacuum, vacuum and then going back right, to the vacuum. Right, 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 right. So that's kind of where I came from, and it was unsatisfying to me. So. Even as a kid, uh, you know, as ten year, nine, ten years old, you did you hope or think that there might be something else? I felt like... You know, it would be nice to imagine something else, you know, um, to have a happier ever after, something that had some concern for me. Like if I would watch something that was, a, you know, a fantasy storyline, you know, Santa Claus actually is, you know, does know what toy you wanted when you were a kid, like these, you know... Tim Allen films or whatever like that. They didn't have anything like that back then, but maybe they'd have something else back then, like uh, Miracle on 34th Street or whatever. I mean, I could enter into the story of divine concern and enjoy that story. And here you go. There, there's your movie. You know, that ended. And Yeah, but it's a, I'm saying it's... it's then I didn't ask, okay, well, is there really a... I'm saying, but it's a momentary uh, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, right. Well, and that's I'm very saying, different from what happened to me later, but... But uh, there's a certain momentary feeling uh, of you can get into the story. I'm just saying as, as in relation to you being a movie maker. And, oh, okay. Well, yeah, that that's what I'm be. saying. Yeah. And the desire to create well, some I sort of... I think there world. might be some truth in that. I think anyway. people who made those movies probably wanted to tell the story that life had meaning in some way, shape, or form. You know, it's a wonderful life or whatever. I just think that might be right. true. But, um, you know, and there's always... I mean, when I was a kid, we were watching the Technicolor films that were being produced at that time, and, you know, we saw Carousel, and it starts out with that, you know, 
a TV character actor, you know, with the visor on, you know, polishing stars and, you know, and John Raitt or whoever, no, uh, whoever the actor was. He's supposed was. to be God? He was supposed to work for God. Okay. You know, and, I never and, saw it. Yeah, right. So they're in heaven and, you know, you know, the idea of going back down to earth, you know, getting one more chance to see his daughter grow up or whatever. Well, now ain't that just dandy. Here you take the trouble to tell me there's trouble down there, but you don't know what kind of trouble it is. So, I mean, I would see movies like that, and, you know, they would, I would enjoy that, you know, and they might produce tears of stirring, a, you know, something in my heart, you know. But I didn't, fin my point was I didn't end up finish watching these movies and then expect a different world than I, believe, than I lived in. Sure. You know, and, and it really wasn't until... I was in my older teen years that I began to uh, have, um, I think people were praying for me, I'd met the Finkelsteins, but I didn't go back there after a little while. But you, so you had, you, you had that sort of anxiety or those little panic attacks, whatever it was. Every once in a while, they weren't super often. You would have those Every occasionally. Six months or something. Throughout your teens as well. Um, yeah. At some on some level or other, you mentioned the the, the Finkelsteins are meeting up with. Well, them. at that point in my life, uh, I began to uh, become more curious, especially when I met them. Where did and you meet them? I was just walking in the neighborhood next to mine where they were, and I had this girl with me that didn't mean anything, but just she was from Akiva and this uh, private school I used to go to, and she was younger than me, and we were just walking on the street. Debbie was walking the dog and then invited us in. Oh, at, to their house? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was a young girl there singing a song called I've Got a Hole in My Soul. And then So you ran into Debbie and just started chatting? Right, right, right. right. Okay. So we, we talked about, uh, you know, she talked about the reality of what this was in their lives. And it was definitely um, something, stirred something up in me. They actually gave me a copy of the uh, Good News for Modern Man New Testament. <laughs> what was your impression when you walked into the house? Was it a, was it a meeting or whatever? You, what would no. you call that? It was just in the daytime. She they were just there. hanging out. They were hanging out. Her and Faye were there. I don't think anybody else was and, there. And some and some girl was. That was Faye. Yeah, she was like sixteen. Oh, Faye, Faye was singing the song. Yeah, Faye Glassberg. Yeah, she was like a, trying to be a folk singer. Okay. And she wrote that song. Okay. Talking about nothing would satisfy her except the Messiah, so it was kind of written like by like Joni Mitchell's uh, "Clouds," you know. Okay. I tried, I tried protests, I tried um, causes, I tried love. You know, right, whatever. and you would, and it didn't. I still remember the melody to the song. But you had you heard it since? No, no, no. You remember from that one day when you were sixteen? A few different days. No, I was nineteen at the time. Oh, oh, okay. I don't remember the chorus. But she. But what, what did you make of the... I mean, you knew that these were Jewish people that believed in Jesus yeah, at the time. Yeah, it wasn't very sophisticated back then. I'm not, I'm not saying sophisticated now, but they were more like Hebrew Christians. And okay, but that's... Still used, but know. what did you... You didn't have any impression just, of that or any... any was, uh, you know, I was at a place in my life where I was really open to, you know, what this was about. There's a whole other dynamic with me that's kind of in the movie script that I wrote. It's another thing that runs through my life. And it really impacted me um, about the whole message. Um, I just got this clue over that six months that it really fed a part of me at that time because I was 
taking a break between high school and college. And I did very well in high school, but I got what they call the Castle Award or something. But it, I had taken all my courses over and over again and taking courses in six months instead of a year at this sort of prep school. And then I graduated well. But after Akiba, you mean? Uh, no. no, after Akiba, I went to Larmer in high school for a year. And then I went 10th grade. I went 8th and 9th grade to Akiba. And then I went from 11th to 12th grade to what was called originally Temple University High School. And then it was called Penn Center Academy. And it was moved to downtown Philadelphia. But something associated with Temple, sort of? Yeah, originally. And then they broke off from it. But it was just a prep school to get all your work done in six months, an hour and a half clay, class a day for six months instead of a 45-minute uh, class for the end to catch up on all your classes because I did terrible in 10th grade. It was my worst year. I see. And then, and then to graduate, which I did, and then I went to two months of Temple University, and I, a month even, and it was so stressful I couldn't even take it uh, because I couldn't concentrate. It was just overwhelming to me. And so I, I dropped out, and then... I immediately, because I was number 116, I, I went, uh, I had to go to a f f army physical. and I was Be like Because I was you dropped army. out? Yeah, because I didn't have a deferment by being in college. And so, but did you, I, And did you know that when you were going to drop out of school that your number probably, was up? I probably did. I, they were giving out lottery numbers back then, so I didn't know whether mine would be low yet, but it was low, so... I went in. What do you mean it was low? They 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 said all numbers between zero and two hundred yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I went in, and uh, but I got out because I had a letter from this psychologist about my anxiety issues. So there was a guy there who happened to be a Jewish psychologist who knew about a lot about Akiva and me, and and he gave me a different. So I got a one Y. So anyways, I didn't go into the army, which probably I would not be here. One Y is psychological. Yeah. Yeah. Issues. Yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening was, um, over that period of time, between August and January, some things began to speak to me about true humility. You know, the pressure that was on uh, people <clears throat> in my community, among my relatives and everybody else, that um, people had to make something of themselves, or that the amount of money people made, or the degrees they had, or... Uh, their accomplishments in life put them in a place where they were better. They, there was a lot of intellectual, you know, when I went to Camp Ramah the first time, the, the rabbi there, McGillner, since passed away, um, I had those feelings already because I ended up interviewing with him and he was trying to tell somebody off as in a, and on the phone about how many degrees he had and the other guy didn't know what he was talking about, you know. Right. And he was overweight. He died like at 48 years old or something. But he, you know, but I remember him like shouting somebody down on the phone before he interviewed me. And I just, I just got such a sour view because it was so much like everything else. And what really struck me over that six months was that message. I began to really believe that something was different here. That, that Yeshua, Jesus, isn't about what we made or what we've accomplished or making us more important or better than other people. Like my aunt and uncle, God bless him, he just passed away recently, but you know, the all the awards that he that he would get for the Chabad. Remember he came to my father's funeral and put one of these I hope this doesn't get out but I have relatives. I, mean, I, I can cut it out if you want. Well, I don't care. They're not gonna hear it probably, but one of these huge awards that he got for how much money he gave and for some strange reason they felt like they should come into my sister's house and put it on the 
on the mantle or something for some you know this whole idea and so everything I was reading because what it was was I started in Matthew and I started reading the Sermon on the Mount wait so you uh, from this good news for modern man that was on my bedstand so you had this this one experience just running into Debbie going into there they gave you a Bible and then you started reading that just yeah but I went a few other times okay that summer with mom like to George Bruin's house where they had some kind of Bible study I don't know why because they would they would call you and then I don't know how it happened but then I didn't go back for six months so I really don't know okay so then I didn't go back until the winter 71 so basically this whole idea you know that I saw there of like, you know, when you give, don't blow a trumpet. See, when I was six years old, eight years old, it's amazing how much in our conscience we kind of grasp certain things. In the synagogue where I went to, out of Israel, this guy, Charlie Tabus, who was like a 400-pound guy, was a very wealthy person. He owned the Downingtown Inn he owned, in Downingtown, Pennsylvania. He owned a lot of other things. And my bar mitzvah reception, not the, not the full reception, which was in another place, but you always had to go down to the Tavis Auditorium in order to have the oneg. It's right, probably still the, called the Oneg. Just the post, right. post bar mitzvah. Well, and even small. after every Shabbat service, every, after right. every, every Shabbat service, they had this huge oneg like, with like spread, petty fours and like full cashew nuts dipped in chocolate. And just like for me, I was this chubby little kid. It was like <laughs> heaven, you know. It's like how oh, every Friday night with my mother would go down there. And we go down to the Tavis Auditorium. So you would go to services every every there Friday? There was a period of time between about 8 and 10 that mom and I would go every Friday night okay. to service. I'd play with her wedding ring and just next Just to her. the two of you? Your yeah, just brother the two and sister didn't go? No. Okay. For some reason, I, I went with her every Friday night. And, you know, I didn't get much out of this, so I didn't understand one thing. Sure, I sure liked the, the chocolate dip cash. Yeah, and I liked sitting next to Mom. Yeah. And yeah. then I liked, you know, and I could And when they sang the Adona along, which was the last song, that was great because it was the last song. You know, what can I tell you? You know, I didn't really enjoy the liturgy that much. I'm still not a huge liturgy, you know, hour after hour liturgy fan. Sure. You know? But I, I went down, I went, we were up, so it was the Tamus Auditorium. And see, that's in the Sound of the Spirit. I mean, I had to put that in there, you know. Right, with, with name and something. With, with Blue Stein Auditorium, yeah. Right. I mean, because that really struck me, you know, because I was reading the Sermon on the Mount. Two things that were striking me about the Sermon on the Mount from this Good News for Modern Man Bible that the Finkelstein had given me, which, of course, I just started Matthew 1. Why wouldn't I? I mean, it's the New Testament, and I'd never read the New Testament before, and here I am in the hippie era. I want to read something. I'm going to read the New Testament. And so I get to that place, and I'm in the fifth chapter, and I'm reading these things, and two things that really struck me if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you know, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And that struck me because it spoke to me just about my own life and about, you know, how I treated and thought of women in my own life. And the other thing that really struck me was that other thing. You know, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, which I quote in the movie. Yeah. You know, Rivka ends up looking at seeing that in her Bible. You know, of course, in the film, I really tried to point out that the Jewish people aren't the only ones who do it. You sure. know, they're the senior citizen center at the church names it after some benefit. There's a great episode of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is the Larry David show. Yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. It's the opposite of what you're saying in a way right. where where uh, you have to appear to be humble right. and, and say donated by 
uh, anonymous. Yeah, yeah. But every but you have to make sure that everyone knows who anonymous <laughs> is. Right, right. Nobody told me that I could be anonymous and tell people. I would have taken that option. Okay, you can't have it halfway. You're either anonymous or you're not. What is it? Look at people are pointing out and go. There's Larry David. Oh Lee. yeah, there's Larry David, the guy who has to have his name up on the wall as opposed to Mr. Anonymous. But was really Ted. I'm proud of you. Anonymous. It's fake philanthropy, and it's faux anonymity. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like in, in, in Peanuts, where Linus wanted to be the most humble, well-known yeah. doctor yeah. in the world. That that whole series of strips that Charles Schultz wrote about that. You know, it's just this new nature. You yeah. know, you want people to know without knowing. So uh, that's true, but they're more overt, right? Because one of the things I never liked was, you know, people give money and they have these like trees made out of brass plates, you right. know, and you go, so we didn't go for that. You know, it's like, you know, in honor of so-and-so, and sometimes it would be. And, and So that connected with something that you already knew. When you read that, you were like, okay, this is, yeah. like, in my culture, this is right. but rampant, that, but I know this is. But the, Yeah, but it connected with something larger, too, which is the whole idea of pride, of self, and judging people's worth by that. You know, it's like I remember my aunt, I met her on the beach in the 80s or whatever, and she was talking about this guy, this, this kid from, from Akiba who couldn't find himself later on. So but she, her attitude was, he's a nothing, you know? <laughs> you know was the way she, because he was sort of floating? Yeah, because he hadn't really figured out who he was and found, found the direction. So I was kind of, I kind of really resonated with everything that was being said. And then, it's interesting what can speak to us and touch our hearts. There used to be a cartoon, this was in December of 70, about four weeks, three weeks before I, I, I finally, on January 16th, really went back, first of all, to the Finkelsteins, because Rachel had moved to another city, to Kansas City, to go to school. And then Were you, date, you were dating mom already? I was dating her in, if you want to put it that way, I don't think we feel that formal about it, but I was going with her very much so. In You were hanging out. In, in hanging out, very a lot, yeah, in the summer of, of um, all the way through December, and then we just decided maybe of it wasn't working. Of the summer of 70 to 71? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and in this car, it was a stop-motion cartoon called Davy and Goliath. True. And here's the real irony about it, is that, the Bridgestone Multimedia Group, which is my distributor, owns all the Davy and Goliaths okay. and puts them in these sets, you know. They bought them all. And we'll uh, insert a little clip from Davy and Goliath here. Yeah, that sounds good. Davy, the little dog used to say. Davy Goliath was the dog. Right? Yeah. And it was a stop motion thing. And yeah. it was put out by You know it was made by the guy who did Gumby. Yeah, yeah. I saw that's a right. documentary about that. Yeah. I think yeah. you you've probably showed me that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right, exactly. And it was it was produced for the Lutherans for whatever it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Uh in this particular one, they're having a Christmas pageant and uh they're doing the manger scene. And of course as you know, I mean I don't get off on celebrating Christmas or anything. It was really which is a beautiful holiday, but you know, we, we really stick with the Jewish cultural expression. But it's so interesting how that spoke to me and it was so wonderful how it spoke to me really sort of almost capped off this feeling I'd had over the last six months God the real God doesn't look at any of that stuff the pageantry the pageantry no no I don't mean the pageantry because that's not what this is about and I'm really diverging it was it was they were playing the, the the different figures in this scene 
you know, the shepherd, the whatever. Right. And Davy wanted the better part or something. He wanted to, uh, you know, have the main role. He wanted to be out there. He wanted the spotlight. He wanted, he wanted to impress everybody, whatever it was. You mind if I turn that air off? No, that's fine. That's fine. It's just going to get on my nerves trying to edit that. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I don't know how to do it. So he actually looks at one of the manger scenes with the three kings, which, you know, that's the legend. It's supposed to be three kings, which, whatever. It actually, the three wise men are supposed to be three kings. What were they actually? They were actually some sort of uh, group of spiritual seekers from the East East. Which means Possibly what, Persia, Zoroastrians Persian or something, yeah. Zoroastrians? Yeah, they came, there may have been a hundred of them. Yeah. Not three, but who cares? So, that's the way it shows. <laughs> and he looks at it and he says, three kings bow before a king. What touched me about it is that everybody was going to have to bow down before, the, this was not something where people were going to be able to pretend that they were anything that made them better than anyone else. And that's what really touched my heart. Um, consciously or unconsciously, I thought about all that stuff, like, you know, the Tavis Auditorium, the, the whole prestige thing. People putting on airs. and yeah, yeah, yeah. And how it related to my life. You know, what was I going to do in life? And Because I was more or less wanting to express, you know, find, you know, who I was and not, you know, at, what did you want to be at that time? I mean, you I wasn't were, sure what I you were playing to. music. You had recorded those tapes. Like, did you feel like yeah. that? Like, I didn't know. Yeah, I thought maybe I didn't know what I wanted to do at that time. Yeah, did you think at that point, at some point, that you might take the route and be a music, do what I do, kind of stuff? Possibly, I might have more thought that I would write for other people because I wasn't sure that I had a lot of confidence in my own abilities. But my experience in terms of my um, phobia, if you want to put it that way, or my... Um, Anxiety. Yeah. Yeah, that, that particular thing that I was describing. Like, okay. Like, almost like a spiritual vertigo. So that ended because I came into confrontation with, you know, a reality that I before thought, you know, would last two hours, you know, in a movie, like, you know, It's a Wonderful Life. In other words, it wasn't reality, but... Sometimes at the end of these kinds of movies, they wake know, up. Well, sometimes that, but sometimes they, the older, jaundiced people end up believing, you know, this whole, you know, Disney, you know, age of believing and whatever it is. So at the end of the movie, um, it's over, like I said earlier. But to think that there's a reality, that there's actually somebody who really I'm accountable to, who cares very much about me and who gave me a trust and has a plan. So... So that whole thing that the Finkelsteins told me, you know, and I kind of ran into that, which you heard a lot about in your childhood that night, you know, when, when I really sensed God's presence and he spoke into my heart pretty clearly certain things uh, about what he wanted to do. And, and um, which was what? Well, I just sensed, I, I opened up, as you know, from hearing so much in your childhood after asking God to show me somewhere in the scripture that talked about the Messiah to Isaiah 53, which you're familiar with. And in the sixth verse, it said, all we like sheep went astray and turned our own way and the Lord laid on him our iniquity. And at that point, I really felt or 
within a few verses after that, I really felt the inner voice that was coming from somewhere else beside me speaking to me or even giving me an impression. I had fallen short of what he wanted me to, what, what I was called to be, who I was. You weren't living up to what you yes. could live up to. Yes, or the, and it was stronger than that. But not in, a sense, not in a sense of degrees or things like that, but, but in a spiritual way? Yeah, in terms of my own, how, how I live my life, the self that I lived for and what I'd done with what I'd been given. Um, I, and I knew that I was, fell short in his sight. And I think that's the point. But it was not with condemnation. It was not with, you know, it was, there was a sweetness to it. Because, like a coach? Yeah, like I knew there was an answer. And because Joe had told me there was an answer and actually showed me a Bible verse where I could access the answer, the famous one from Revelation 3, you know, about him standing at the door of my heart and knock. So Joe had gone over, over all that stuff with me. And, and like, was it a trend at the time to, to be to like peel open your Bible? You know, was that like a thing people were doing? Like, let me just see if there's. I think, a... I think, I think. I don't know if it was a trend to peel open your Bible and ask that way. Because uh, I've heard that not just from you, but other people that that have done that sort right. of thing. Well, right? I don't know. I don't know that anybody had shared that with me, and it may not be a way to study the Bible, but it certainly was something that came to my mind. I want to say, I had certainly begun to see Jesus in a different light than my parents, kind of like. We don't really study him or do you want to know much about him. Although, you know, I mean, when I was nine years old, ten years old, we went to New York. and We never went on real vacations. We always went on business trips. And my father was going to New York. And again, he was going to Connecticut in order to, and, and, and uh, Yonkers and whatever, to connect with, uh, you know, machine shops. <laughs> right. And, and uh, we went to New York and we were, we were on Times Square and... And we saw Ben Hur in a movie theater. Yeah, yeah. And the, it was filled, so they had to put some seats in the aisle. My father slipped him a few dollars or whatever to sit you guys in the aisle. Yeah, you know, I don't know what he thought about that. I never asked him, you know. But I'm sure that you know he thought about it. But but that's not it. I mean, I wouldn't call that a, a movie with like deep Christian themes, is it? It was. Yeah. You, you would say that. I mean, I know yeah. it. it Deals with that period of history and stuff like that. Maybe yeah. I can't really remember exactly. Yeah, there's a whole thing in it about it. In okay. fact, you know, his, his sister and, and brother or sister and her husband or something end up having leprosy. And after the crucifixion, you can see that they get healed or something. Yeah, they get healed. And okay. The of He's like a messianic Jew, but that was okay in the first century. It was, it was, there was a book written in 1860s. Before, before the religion turned Greek. I heard a whole right. thing about that right. on Terry Gross, which is very interesting, by this... Uh, Muslim guy actually, or he he was Muslim. And then, right. Did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he was yeah. Christian for a while. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah, yeah. I heard him. Yeah. Anyway, that was really yeah, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, so and then when that happened, the presence of God was really in the room, and I read these verses, which were startling to me. Uh, that's when I made you know, and I said what I said, you know, that the God make me what He wants me to be. I thanked Him for forgiving me uh, for things I've done, which were harmful to myself and others, and all that. I didn't make a big thing out of it but um, and I asked him to really be in my life and all that and when I woke up the next morning uh, I, before I remembered what I'd done uh, I sensed something different in, inside my heart and it, just a word that was the beginning of a real adventure which I've thought about since then because I was at a place in my life where I really didn't even want to take a bus anywhere I was very kind of insulated and internal and then and fearful and I was I just was stuck at a stuck place in my life and it wasn't an adventure to me you know, as you know from that little tape that was on the other side of the uh, 
songs that you wrote the song based on that on that tape, and you actually uh, sampled uh, yeah. me in that um, tape. Uh, yeah, and I had a lot of adventures over the next several months, which the tape doesn't really accurately totally treat. But I was just trying to talk to mom about it on a tape and send it down to Kansas City. Did you feel like you had filled some sort of that that void, that vacuum? Did you feel like that was sort of filled now with the space of purpose and God? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. I mean, I began to read the Bible and it began to make much more sense to me. And I was working for my parents, and I had all these adventures downtown. I would meet people on the streets, and yeah, yeah, no, and I and I would go over to Finkelstein's house like every night. And a lot of other people had gotten involved since then, so I got to be friends with them. And we went to this church on Sunday mornings. There was no Messianic congregation that time. Then we went to kind of a quasi-Messianic work downtown on Sunday mornings for a while before the turnoffs came in. I went to a year uh, in night school of uh, Philadelphia College of Bible. And my mother wasn't thrilled, but, uh, you know, I went there and it was okay. But then my mom convinced me to go back to college. So the year between 71 and 72, I think, and then in the fall of 72... I ended up going to uh, to Temple University for four years. You know, English. Yeah. I in English. My mom asked me to do that, so I, I did it. She 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 asked you to do the English degree, or, no, or just to go to back to school? Just to go yeah. to school. Yeah. And the English degrees, you were interested in writing and stuff like that? or I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I just decided to do that. I ended up in 76 working at a shoe store, because during... During the um, school years, I worked part time at, at the shoe departments at uh, at a department store. This is during high school, you mean? Or? No, during college. Okay. I worked eighteen hours a week for thirty six dollars at a shoe store in uh, Springfield, which was beyond where we lived in Drexelbrook. Took a trolley in Philadelphia. It was in the suburbs, but there's this trolley that runs in the suburbs there. Down the main line. It's sort of not in the main line. It's Delaware County. Oh, okay. I worked at the Wanamakers there in the budget shoe department. Okay. And I worked there. But in 74, in the, I wasn't sure I wanted to go back to college. I was kind of tired of it. So much pretension and stuff like that. It's kind of like what you felt maybe. I don't know. But And then so uh, that summer, my father-in-law got me a job at a, at a new record store downtown on Market Street called Zounds. And I was going to work in the classical music department. But that store never opened. So just for that summer, I worked... And so mostly, um, like, Curtis Mayfield, Ohio players, like, soul. Funk soul. Yeah, yeah, funk soul music. Yeah, yeah Hughes Corporation. Stuff that was big in the summer of 74. Yeah. And then um, I decided to go back to college. I had gotten married already six months earlier, so I had to go back to college. Why, why shoe stores? It just kind of happened. And then, yeah. Yeah. I was going to be a vacuum cleaner salesman. Uh, it was during the during the recession, pretty bad recession. Gas had gone way up. Yeah. And jobs were scarce. And I had to feed my family. Yeah. But then this whole thing happened where I was teaching at Beth Yeshua and Marty Chernoff really felt like the Lord spoke to him that I should... Then there were all the kinds of miracles around that that I just don't need to go into all that. But anyway, so it ended up, it ended up that, you know, we moved to Cincinnati in this fall of 77. Had you... Feel about moving? I was for it. I actually had a job offer with the Franklin. No, job offer. I had a job interview with the Franklin Institute, maybe to be one of their 
you know, like Dosen. I like to talk about. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I don't know if there was going to be anything in it, but I wanted to try it. Franklin Institute is a uh, science museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know the kind of thing I'll tell the people. Yeah, right. Science Museum in Philly. And so, you know, I was telling Marty about it, and that's when he brought up to me. I was upstairs in this house we owned on Ashton Road in Upper Darby, near the shoe store. And and Marty told me about this situation here in Cincinnati, and I didn't take it seriously. I kind of started walking downstairs after he talked to me, and then I felt like my spirit, you know, was telling me, God telling me, go back up and call him back. So I did, and then he got very serious about it, told me that he really felt like... I should look into it. And actually, in July of that year, and I was was he was he in Cincinnati at that yeah. time? No, he was in Philly. Okay, I was in Philly. He was in Philly. Okay, he had just moved to Philly to start uh, another congregation. About, yeah, about a year or two earlier. Why did he leave Cincinnati? Uh, he just felt called to Philadelphia. They, they, things had run its court their course here. He didn't feel like there was much more he could do. There were things that he just felt it was time to move. Hmm. And there weren't very many people here when I came. I came in July here, and I met people here. I had met a few of them after the conference. I met Paul Rogers for the first time, and and your 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 family. How did they react to to that? To you moving? They they had just you just had Josiah, I guess. Mom thought right. Mom thought that I was just doing it because there wasn't anything else. You know, she had a hard time, like that. Maybe she didn't want to leave Philly. Well, she felt also that it was a shaky thing to take something like this. Like, why would I do that? Yeah, I've been doing it thirty six years. Even though she became, even though she was a believer at the time. Now you're talking about mom. You oh, said mom. mom. You're talking oh, about mom. your mom. Oh, Sorry, I'm talking about my mom. Sorry. Okay, it's okay. Now it's my fault. I'm getting confused. Uh, well, Rachel, you say mom when you talk about Rachel. Too. Rachel. Yeah. yeah. No, mom. Yeah, Rachel. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not thinking about my mother. Rachel actually felt like uh, she was willing to do it, but it was hard for her to leave her family and everybody else. She just yeah. kind of did it. But yeah. she was open to it. She did it. Uh, yeah, I'd have to, you'd have to speak to her. Yeah, and but and your so your mom her. your mom felt like it was it was something that like what's Cincinnati is so, you know. Well, I think for my mom it was like, well, you're just doing it because it's the easiest thing to do. Right. That's not quite what it really was, but that's how she felt. Yeah. What what she felt what felt right her. about it to you? Oh, many many things. Wow. All of a sudden, the whole world of understanding what this was about began to be opened up to me and the book of Nehemiah especially really spoke to me that the, it's like a shepherd's book about how he cared for the people but but um, there was a guy named Vince D'Angelo who kind of was peripherally connected to the congregation he was kind of a plumber or whatever and he was he was very intuitive had a real thing. Is this Cincinnati guy? Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, okay. Yeah and he just told me one day that after I had already Marty had told me and I was planning to go but I hadn't told anybody really and uh, and Vince said um, I think the Lord woke him up the night and he said you know I've given Michael Shepherd's heart and I'm calling him that was really cool but it was all just confirmation about what I already knew I had a total peace about doing it I just knew that I knew that it was the right thing to do and I never questioned it and has it felt right ever since, or have yeah. you ever doubted it? Said like, no. uh, yeah, I've never doubted it. We've had we've had ups and downs, difficult people in the mid '80s, and I feel bad about all the different stress that put on me when you were so young, and you, you know, we had a huge issue in the congregation with some people, and which was what 
uh, just this one lady who was kind of crazy came in and some other people and we had a, we only had about 70 people there's a couple hundred now but whatever it is but there was like 70 then we lost like 20 or 30 people and it was just a rough time through through a, like, with like some sort of split yeah yeah just they went off with this woman or whatever and the bottom line is that I almost moved back to Philly uh, no uh, they wanted a leader in London, England. Oh, really? At the, in the eighties, eighty-six. Yeah, I, I actually figured maybe my time's up in Cincinnati and sort of worn out with this whole. Thing. What if we had gone to London, England? Would have been interesting. You know, I actually most of the staying time for for people in ministry like this is very short. You know, yeah. thirty-six years in the same congregation is a little odd. So, uh, so yeah, we actually we went, I went to England. Did that? I remember when you went. Yeah, that was to check that out. I went to England. Yeah, I, I actually candidated for the congregation, as they call it. Yeah, people actually uh, interviewed me and everything. Huh? Yeah. What happened? What happened? You didn't get it, or you didn't want it? I would have gotten it if I'd have wanted it. But Betty Lambert was so distressed about the whole thing. She didn't like you leaving. We knew we had a. Well, this isn't the reason for it, but she knew we. She knew our our washing machine was going bad, so. She took up money to buy us a whole new washing machine. I always felt like it was like an anchor to keep us in Cincinnati. The washing machine. <laughs> That's not the reason we I stayed, but but yeah, yeah. So I, we almost were. We almost went to London. That would have been crazy. That would have been really nuts. We didn't. I stuck it out. I I felt like I shouldn't. It wasn't the right thing. Yeah. And I stayed in Cincinnati, but that was a very stressful time for me. It's like with my father, probably things in the, in the 60s, 50s, I wasn't aware of the stress. Like, Yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, as a little kid, I, I can't say that I, I mean, you know, you pick, you, you intuit things, but you yes. don't really absolutely understand what's happening. No, it was a difficult time. And like you say, I don't, I'm not prone to depression. You know, there have been a few times when I've, I've gotten pretty low. Yeah, I, I, I just remembered a dream I had. Um, and this this was probably ten years ago. You were in it, and you you was some sort of somebody trying to kill you. I think at the congregation at oh. the at the old yeah yeah Pleasant yeah. Ridge place yeah. Oh, oh. And I I had to. Well, let's talk about you for a minute. Anyway, yeah. the frustration. No, it's good. I mean, I appreciate it. and the frustration that you endured because of difficult people there, you know, some very dysfunctional people and very messed up people, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and every other way. You know, like, you know, and... uh, He'll be listening. Yeah, he's down in Kentucky somewhere. And and then also, um, you know, Irish, unfortunately, passed away in in her 40s. Yeah. Paranoid, schizophrenic, bipolar, in an extreme sense. So you had to, you had to, you had those people around you. Yeah. And nice people, different people, all sure. kinds of people. And, of course, people that you felt maybe put you under a lot of pressure, you know, to feel. And there's so many other feelings that you had. You had a lot of feelings. You, you know, the, the old place was kind yeah. of dirty, and you were very, very sensitive to things. Oh, I don't think I was at that time, really, as much. I don't think you liked it. Certain things. Right maybe, maybe you're right, yeah. Absolutely. And childhood was very hard for you. Yeah. Really, really hard. Why was that, you think? I don't know. You you were until Becky was born. I think that Mom says that you were much more. Oh, we can't. Yeah, the speaking is going to be real yeah. loud. I don't know what she's doing. 
Sorry, we get, the squeaking is too loud for the thing. It's, it's super sensitive mics. It's all right, it's all right. <laughs> okay, Rachel. Here are This is my wife, have that My wife of 39 years, 40 years. This, this and you can also have this plant if you want. Oh, yeah, indoor plants. I want them. You'll have to transplant it, but these philodendrons? Ah, see, when you say you have to transplant it, that's always the thing. Oh, By the you way, the mail is out there. This was at the door. Alright, I'll let you guys finish. You mom says that you were you were much more comfortable and, and then you know it just was hard for you, you know, the middle child. You're saying you're saying Becky messed me up? Or sorry, not up. her specifically, but the idea of having a younger sibling. Yeah, I think so. I think that I wasn't the one that was coddled. I don't know what the story was. But also, uh, you know, you had a lot of problems in various areas uh, that I don't fully understand. But like what? What do you mean? Well, I'm not once mom and denying I, it. I know you're right. Yeah. Though. Well, well, you, you you could never tie your shoes tight enough or the, your belt tight enough, stuff like that. And mom and I are watching the Sally Jesse Raphael show in Philadelphia at my mom's house once, and they're having this whole thing about OCD on there, and that was one of the examples they gave. So it doesn't mean you're which was a, that was when I was a kid. Yeah, there was a mother there who explained that their their son you could never tie his shoes tight enough, you could never tie his belt tight enough. And, I mean, it resonated so clearly with because that's exactly what yeah dealing with you know, you know and what did you make of that at the time? I was concerned that you know that everything would be okay. Mom was concerned. We were just concerned. Like, what did that stem from? You think? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, sometimes those things have a chemical component, I guess, or whatever. But sometimes uh, there's various things that 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 might stem from. You were a very sensitive kid, and you're an introvert. You had very um, it was hard for you. Josiah was um, kind of over overactive, really overactive. And I'll tell you a little story. Yeah. That, that you know, I expect you to remember because I think you're going to remember everything I remember. But when you were so young, you're so young, you probably do remember it. I may or may not. I don't know. Well, I don't know. But we used to play these wild games, you know, because uh, you know you were boys and the I caveman was, games. Yeah, 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 stuff. yeah. That's the one. So you know. I was the caveman, and he was the caveman's catcher. Caveman catcher. Just I was the caveman catcher. Yeah, I was the caveman. He was the caveman. Well, because we would go up into your room, which had the two beds, and I would, and I was like, and you know, and he would try. He would chase you. Yeah, I see. Yeah. So, what role were you going to play? And you were like the caveman catcher's assistant. I was the guy that just watched. (laughs) Well, or that you helped him. Yeah. Yeah. Because the the goal of the thing actually was that the two of you would go chase me around, but I I could have called you caveman catcher one and caveman catcher right. two, but you were the younger brothers. So I called you, and that where's was, Becky at this time? She was just too young. I don't even know if she was with, here because you were maybe two years old. So what does that mean? I mean, maybe she just was. But I I remembered. I had to be three or four. Maybe you were three. I have a very very vague memory. I have a memory of us downstairs actually. I remember, like, a, there was a closet outside of your bedroom, like... Well, we played a game where we would be on the sofa, and it would be like we were in a building, and the first person to fall off. We played a game where we would travel to different places, which is very much at the time we were doing the caveman catcher thing. In fact, that could have been a part of it at the time, where we would go to different countries, and... Maybe that was it. We were wearing, like, hats or right, something. Right, right, right. And we'd go, and, you know, and then I would be, again, some crazy guy who you'd meet in the country. Yeah, but you were very upset. At the, what, the caveman game? Yeah, because you didn't want to be the assistant. It's like you were kind of the odd man out. 
And Josiah actually, you know, was a very, it's so different than today, you know, because he's so calm in his demeanor. Yeah. But he was... Um, he was a hyperactive kid. Hyperactive, a lot of physical type of things going on there as far as pounding away and, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you were like, well, it was a typical younger brother in some ways. Like, he was Batman, you were Robin, you know, right, that kind sure. of stuff, you know, that, that would happen. But, you know, and then there was the time that you played the invisible kid in a movie that we made. Yeah. And somehow something ticked you off and you started crying and you were wearing your sunglasses. And then we had to stop shooting for a while to get back yeah. to shooting again. Finally finished it because it was one of those amazing special effects where you That's great. Right? I like that movie. <laughs> I wish we had those movies. We do somewhere. On a, the problem is, I, I don't have a, B, a VCR. But you can get them transferred. You know? Yes, you can. We should someday do that. Yeah. Anyway, oh, I'm, you know, I spend my life trying to figure out what my issues are, what the answer is to, you know, to, uh, you know, and I, I, I think that the Crohn's disease and all that stuff is, you know, somehow, you know, you, I think it's, you know, partially dietary, but I think it's also partially stress or negative emotions related. I mean, maybe that's like... Yeah, but you know what I think partially? On what's that? I think that you got, and I could be wrong about this. I mean, all those things play into it. There's no question about that. But you also got a... a, 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 a you got very sick in the early uh, 2000s. And I yeah. think that Crohn's may have possibly resulted from... Uh, that virus, whatever that virus. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... yeah. Part of it, I'm sure. Yeah. As far as other things are concerned, like you've had, you've made decisions that have been tough to make that that you needed to make. I think there was a part of it that, the part of the disgust of things, that you you shifted and changed because it was the right thing to do and because you, you know, you you made some wise decisions and one of those decisions was eating things that you refused before. And I think one of the reasons you refused, and there are many reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons was because that whole dynamic that's hard to get our heads around that, you know, that these, this was a, an animal, that this was right, a thing. Right, just the violence of things. The violence yeah. and also the, the fact that we're made of some similar materials and, you know, sure. we're eating these things. And uh, so that, that, but there's a little bit of that, that sort of repulsion that can go along with that, you know, that, that yeah. is related to some of the other dynamics. You know, like, you know, we think about germs and many other things that, that you think about classically when you think about obsessive compulsive issues. So the, pro- so the point is that there's a relate or some kind of connection. Not that those have germs, but there's a connection. But the, the point is that, you know, uh, you've really... You're telling me I've made strides. You have, absolutely. And also, in addition, I mean, stress does play a role in all of these things and you've you know you've been less stressed I think in some ways maybe more stressed than others but you know I'm working on it and finding yeah. some sort of peace you know yeah 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 but yeah I don't know I mean and I've definitely got things to work on you know I feel like I I, I have trouble with relating to women I guess in yeah. some ways I mean not not like on a day-to-day basis or whatever but yeah. like you know, as far as having relationships and stuff, it doesn't really seem to happen yeah. for me, which is, you know, what what did you, well, you said you found some verse in the Bible that's, that's changed things about that, what it's thinking for you, but what was it that you well, there's a different thought between, before that and after? Well, there's a difference between, I mean, I think sexual desire is has a strong physiological component, and I'm not saying that, 
but I was challenged for the first time, you know, about how I think about those things and, and what role... Not seeing objects as women. Yeah, right, exactly. Objective, you know, of people, you know. Not that, obviously, you know, we aren't attracted to a woman's body or that right. we shouldn't be or that we shouldn't enjoy the sexual activity with the appropriate whatever, but just the whole idea of, you know, pornography or just all that stuff or just wanting to get to know a girl just so that you can, you know, get to that place with, you know what I mean, and not thinking about her as anything more than that, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. Because for me back then... Do you I feel didn't like that, that's kind of how you were? Yeah, I didn't have any restraints or any other input. I knew that there were sleazy things, but, you know, I, I wasn't challenged to say, you know what, uh, there are some things that aren't right and some things that are about this and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just like reading that, you know, and Yeshua's words are just pretty point blank, you know. You know, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you know, you commit adultery. In other words, speaking in that terms of somebody who's married is looking at another woman, which is, you know, pretty obvious, but he's challenging the people around him. It's what goes on inside of us. Right. That works out. And, they, and he deals with the murder. If you hate somebody, you know, you're murdering, murdering your heart. So, you know, he's saying, you know, where does it start? So, yeah, I was challenged about those things. I was challenged to he's rethink saying, I mean, my his, life. His ideas are pretty, really pretty uh, Eastern in a way, like, or, or just the, the idea of, of getting to a place of, of sort of purity and surrender within yourself. Yeah, I would say that's true. The only difference that I would say, because there's truth, is truth, is the one that Bono talked about just a few weeks ago in an article where he talked about the difference between grace and karma for, with, with, the, with the concept that relates to, the, to, to what I identify with and what Bono was trying to say to a certain extent right there is it's not about finding these disciplines yourself through your own self-transformation through, through, through uh, your own sowing and reaping but in terms of you know beginning with this idea of God's grace so he says it better than me. I didn't really, you know, and he talked about the death and the resurrection in the article. I, have, I haven't read the article for about a month, so I can't remember the details in it. He was sort of delineating some differences in those regards, but, but that's the difference that it made for me that night because I knew that apart from any disciplines, everything changed for me, and I began to resist temptation and do things like that after it. But it started with my opening up the door to God and God opening the do up the door for me. Everything was different from then on and the difference began to be worked out by resisting that which I didn't see a need to resist before. And you can talk about it and say it's like getting religion, but to me it had to do with that concept that he wrote in that article about, which I'd have to reread, nuanced differences between between things and probably oh, what accepting forgiveness from from an external yeah. source yes, sort that's of right. that's right and in fact when somebody first talked to me about born again which was not a common phrase back then it didn't become a common phrase until the Carter years with the the, the evangelicals that sort yeah of... yeah and after after the Jesus movement had already gained enough traction for those terms which are biblical terms but to become more nobody said born again believer in 1971. Right. It wasn't until maybe it began to grow and become more mainstream and ended up in Life and Look and Time magazine and finally ended up with our president claiming that he was born again and all that other stuff. So then it became... Oh, Reagan more, or Carter? Uh, Carter. 
Carter, okay. So was, that was it. Carter was the first one who used the term. Was Falwell and all that? Wasn't that? Yeah, but that was later. Okay. I mean, we didn't know about Falwell in 1976. Okay, okay. That was with Reagan, I guess. Yeah, yeah. right, right. So, uh, but for me, when the term was first brought to my attention by um, Manny Brotman in July of 70, when he was visiting the Finkelsteins, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. And what really struck me about it was what you just said. I couldn't try to work it out myself because I was seeing a psychologist, David Morgenstern, and I was trying to navigate through my life. And uh, the last thing that the last meeting I had with him, practically before this decision, I said, "I feel like I've been a liar in my life. I've lied to myself." And he said, "Well, maybe you were a liar until yesterday." And then I put that up on my wall above my bed. Maybe you were. I like that. Maybe you were a liar until yesterday. I really right. like that because what it said to me is. I'm going to seriously see some changes happen here. And, but I know that the mechanism through which it occurred was this idea. I couldn't inject life into myself to transform whatever was going on there. I needed something from the outside, kind of like cleaning a hard drive from a, an external uh, hard drive instead of from inside the computer or looking at the Milky Way from inside the Milky Way. I mean, I needed something outside me. That concept was a part of this whole dynamic that was going on, and I think it may be to a certain extent what, what Bonner was talking about in the article. Some sort of benevolent external force yeah. Yeah. that, yeah. would you say, that, that encompasses the whole universe, but is part of it? or what? Like, when I talked to Jordan, he, he, had, you know, he had this concept of it being everything and encompassing everything, but being, being the, the head of everything, sort of. I can't say something like that. I hadn't figured all that out. I knew that it wasn't the universe itself. And I don't have the ability, just like I didn't have the ability to grasp the eternity before and after when I would think about people I knew that had died and that no longer existed or had conscious from my own perspective. But it didn't freak me out as much like that because I didn't feel empty about it. But I I didn't understand it, and I don't understand it. And so I can't say that I took that thought that far to think, okay, well, this external thing, what beginning did it have? Or I knew it was beyond the universe we existed. In fact, like, you know, if you see Beautiful Mind, they used to believe that the universe had no beginning, and John Nash actually believed that. Right. And and it's in the movie, you know, he's talking to this, the wife, the, the actress plays her, and it, and it was just a given that the universe never had a beginning. But now they know it did have a beginning. So I never, I never thought that the universe was eternal and he was part of the eternal universe. But I, I always thought that, um, that he, was, he was eternal and the universe wasn't eternal. I mean, I don't know why I thought that, but I mean, I don't say I had any science behind it, but I just did believe that. And of course, the Bible kind of teaches that, but I did believe it. But I didn't understand it, and I still don't understand it. I really wasn't trying to figure that out. I only knew that there was this loving father, the figure, this God, that cared about me, and I needed something from him that I couldn't manufacture for myself. So do, do you feel like you can sort of plug into that force and feel connected to, the, to everything else in a way? or what? Well, I, first of all, I just feel connected to him, and then he helps me feel connected to everything else. Um, and you know, growing up with me, I've got my own distractibilities and everything else. Maybe sometimes you felt I wasn't very connected to other things. But um, the primary connection when I'm praying is, is with him. And I, I bring to him all the things about the world around me. 
and my own response, what's going on in areas that I need to see changes and everything, but for myself. But I, but I definitely feel like um, there is that one-on-one thing from that point of view, and hopefully that helps me you know, grasp everything in the world around me, but I'm not sure I think about so much how... Well, I had this phone call in 10 minutes, so I'm supposed to be yeah. Yeah, we can wrap it up. Anything else that we haven't talked about? Well, I just want to tell you I love you very much. I love you too. And and also, um, you know, I always try to keep abreast of what's happening in your life. One of the things I will say that I sort of inherited from my whole... You talk about the reacting to the world around you and to how God works with that. I mean, I retained this attitude that we should really learn about living and not just worry about how we're going to make a living. And I know a lot of other parents who really impress their children, like, you know, well, this is the field to go into because if you want to be paying bills for the rest of your life, don't go to that field and don't do this. I've never had a lot of worry about that in my life because I didn't even know I was going to do what I was doing, right? I mean, I ended up with an English degree, and I thought about other things. Do I want to be a lawyer? I, a lot of, I was already a believer at the time, and during college I would even pray about that stuff. But, you know, I mean, what do you get with an English degree? So the point is... I didn't really worry about it that much. And interestingly enough, when you were young, you know, and you were just trying to process things yourself, you wondered whether, you know, you might want to get into a career that would that would be something that would take care of a lot of those kinds of things. But, you know... Like something that made money, you mean? Yeah. I mean, when you were like, young, little, you thought about that, I think. Well, one time you mentioned it to me, you know, you'd really like to do something that... I don't remember. I want to make, make money? Okay. Uh, yes, I don't know. But in the final analysis, you really opted... To not make any money. <laughs> to not, well, and more importantly than not making any money, because you are making some money. More importantly, to do the thing that you really felt you had a desire to do, a dream for, and a gift for, and an interest in. You know, and I really support that. You know, and, and you, you always will have giftings that you can flow in in your life and you, you develop in various different avenues whether it's you know performing or producing or working in other media like film or whatever you know you have those gifts you have all those gifts in your life because you're also a, 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 a graphic artist which many people know from the album jackets but you have an enormous amount of skill that you re- receive really from mom really more than me you may not be developing it that much right now but you have those gifts and a lot of people who do music have those gifts. I, we just saw just saw that documentary about Johnny Mercer, and he he does watercolor painting. It's quite good. Tony Bennett does watercolor painting or other kinds of painting. George Gershwin did. I think a lot of times they go together. For some people, they go together. Yeah. They really well, I think our artistic people are, are, tend to be artistic. You know? Yeah, all the way around. And uh, as you continue to explore and do different things, you know, I'm sure that they'll continue to come into play in your life and um, I know a lot of people appreciate you know the things that they're struggling with or they, they either rejoice with or that they struggle with or they have pain about that you express they say well that's how I feel many times or whatever but you use you know what God has given you in, in the way that you're using it now and you know, I you know I have desires for you, but not to be shaped exactly like me. I, I like I, I heard the beginning of the um, of your talk with I have to hear the rest of it with uh, Jordan Feynman and in the, in the way you said you know that Jordan believes what his parents believe, but he's made it his own. I think right. that's the way you put it, and that's true. I mean, 
no matter where you go or what you do or how much you may or may not end up seeing the, the reality that I believe I've found, the, 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 how real that is in my life, uh, you'll make it your own. You'll make whatever it is your own that you do in your life. And you have made everything your own. I mean, you, you know, all the music and... You know, I think one of the things that's said about you is you're not just like could it cook cook. I mean, you've taken things. I'm no good at things unless it's on my own terms. That's something I've learned about myself. Right, I don't right. unless I can do it my own way, which is always wrong. <laughs> I never know. I can't do things. But you've also integrated like so many other artists, from Shakespeare to Dylan, you know, and way beyond other people's forms and other people's stuff. But you've made that your own, so that you know it's you know you use what other people have done you don't reinvent the wheel but you you create your own wheel that somebody else can look at and say um you know I, you know he's done something different so you know i think every artist is like that where you develop even beethoven you know mozart had a great impact on beethoven jerome kern had a great impact on richard rogers but they were different people and they moved things forward into different dimensions and I'm sure Shakespeare, I know he was impacted by the playwrights of his day and those who lived before him and even the Greeks. And, you know, but you have your own voice. It's not their voice. It's your voice, right. you know. But, but you've done a lot of study in, into what others have done. And in your own way, you know, you didn't do it through formal, musical, whatever. I mean, that's not how you did it. But, you know, a lot of people don't do it that way. But I just wanted to say that. But what about the, the shame, anxiety... Well, I know how I've dealt with disconnection. Yeah, I know how I've dealt with shame and anxiety, and you know that's all that I can tell you. But you have a lot of people who aren't ashamed of you, and a lot of people who are confident that you're. I know, but that doesn't change it for yourself. I know. I just wanted to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, these are good questions. Hopefully, these things will be. They are quick, great questions. Clear in time. I mean, you know, I I work on it, but yeah. uh, well, well, yeah, that, you know where I'm coming. You know where we, I stand. We didn't go in. Time. We didn't go into the Edison or the Wright brothers or or your infatuation with show tunes. No, Mr. Wolf's obsessions that he is well versed in for some reason. We don't have to do that, that, but they can always look up Tinfall Phonograph, and they can see my two phonograph. Tinfall Phonograph on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. And none of them are as good as it's working now. I have to clarify that. <laughs> it's got to work even better. All right, well, let's, let's close up shop then. Yeah, okay. You got to do your thing. I'm going to go to a yoga class. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll do a part two at some point. Yeah. I don't know. You've got so many other people waiting in. Oh, uh, well, you know. <laughs> See? <laughs> okay. All right. Good talk. Let, let's, can we do a photo real quick? Yeah. We can have mom, yeah. mom take it because I, I, I like to put up a photo. Like Absolutely. That. I got to comb my hair so I can look as young as you. Let's find a... Uh, that always looks so different after he combs his hair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> complete, complete transformation. I, I know you're not gonna recognize it. I should get my glasses. No, that's okay. Where, where should we? Uh, where should we take it? Let's take it from the photographs. Okay. Yep. You guessed it. I gotta go to the Apple Store again today. I gotta see the uh, see the wizard behind the flesh curtains. <laughs> um. The Wi-Fi quit working on my phone. I just got this new phone and granted I had a hookup and I got it for $50 or whatever but my old one I had smashed the screen so I got this new phone transferred all my shit over it's always such a big deal to do that you know it takes time and effort and, and just emotional energy and you know next thing I know something else wasn't working 
So I had to go to the Apple store and get that fixed several weeks ago. You know, you, you gotta, I had to transfer everything off the phone again and then back on. It's like a huge thing. Now I gotta go again. My Wi-Fi doesn't work anymore. The Wi-Fi thing is just grayed out. What the fuck, man? Maybe it's a faulty phone or maybe it's just the way these things are made. There's a whole child flattened, you know, somewhere inside the thing. It's like they're going to take it apart and just have to take a tweezers and remove the fetus from my phone or whatever. I, like it got caught in the machine at the factory is what I was saying. I hope you liked that episode. I hope it wasn't too too hard to follow. I know we use a lot of names, you know, of people. You don't know who those people are, but you understand they're family members, right? This episode, well, the music that I played, you know, the, I guess I only used two songs uh, of my dad's from that tape that I found uh, as a kid. Then I used another one of his songs over the uh, intro and outro. I don't know if you guys have noticed that I've been doing that. I use the artist of the day's material, chop it up and put it over my piano intro and outro a little jazzy thing i like to do details i'm detail oriented not like most podcasters guys i hope you notice that i use some wise i got a new intro you like that new intro that i'm gonna use that i think every episode and that way there's a consistent it's like a you know your branding you know it's like it might might as well be a a, a sizzling ww you know wandering wolf on, on the ass of the uh the cow that is each new episode uh, for, for carving and serving and consuming. This episode was produced and edited by Ben Sloan and myself. I want to have, I want to say for the, you know, for like, uh, for Whizzle Whizzle. Whizzle Whizzle Productions, can we say that? Wandering Wolf, you know, Whizzle Whizzle. Or, uh, I don't know, we'll come up with something. We'll have something. All right, y'all. Okay, okay bitches. bitches. Hasta la vista. Until next week. Hasta next semana. That's not right. That's not right. Take it a care. And above all, keep wandering. I found my sickness telling you the violence in our tears. You know, it wasn't right. But you language still affects my style Although I sometimes treat your visions like a child If you get there before I do Wait for me like I'd wait for you The gray, gray, gray something like that.